welcome to episode 46 of the Tech Done Right podcast, table excise podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. Today on the show, we have two repeat guests. We've got Avdi Grimm, the head chef of Ruby Tapas, and Sarah May of Ruby Central and Salesforce. I recently realized that all three of us began our professional careers within a couple of weeks of each other in August and September 1998, which is almost exactly 20 years ago as I record this. So I wanted to talk to Avni and Sarah about what's changed and what stayed the same. We talk about open source and agile and dynamic languages, distributed systems, some things you'd expect and a couple things you might not, and how they've all changed or haven't changed the developer's experience. I'm really glad I got the chance to talk to Avdi and Sarah about this. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we start the show, I have a few quick messages. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. If you want me to come to your place of business and run a workshop on testing or legacy code or agile team structure or a couple of other things, um, that is a thing that we can make happen. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or hit our website at tablexi.com slash workshops. And of course, if you like the show, tell a friend, a colleague, tell your social media network. Uh, letting me know that you like the show would be great, if only for me. Uh, all of that is very helpful. And also, reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts podcast helps people find the show, which every podcast says, but it is still true. Uh, we would really appreciate it. And now here is my conversation with Avdi and Sarah. Our two guests should be familiar to you because they have both been on the show before and also because you should just be familiar with them because they're interesting people to follow and listen to what they have to say about technology. I have Sarah May and Avdi Grimm. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Sarah May. I um help run Ruby Central. So we run both RubyConf and RailsConf. I'm the program chair for RailsConf coming up, and uh, I work as a software architect at Salesforce. And Avdi? And I am Avdi Grimm, and I run rubytapas.com, which is a screencast service, and create various other uh, educational stuff for programmers. So the reason why I have Sarah and Avni on here today is that in various ways, I became aware that all three of us got our first professional jobs more or less at the same time in late August, in August or early September uh, 1998, which was almost exactly 20 years ago as we record this. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about how the industry has changed and how the industry has not changed and how being a developer felt 20 years ago and how it feels now. Hopefully this will not turn into a, we walked uphill in the snow both ways or old people yelling at clouds. I mean, but we did walk uphill in the snow both ways. I mean, just saying. (laughs) My first software job was in Boston, meaning I think I was statistically much more likely to be walking in the snow. That's probably true. uh, (laughs) Mine was in Seattle. (laughs) uh, So maybe let's start with each of you sort of briefly talking about how you started and what your first job or first couple jobs were like. So I did a, a, I have a fairly traditional background. I did a computer science degree. I graduated in spring of 1998 uh, from UCSD. And I took a job that August at Microsoft up in Redmond. So I moved myself from... A scrappy small startup. Scrappy small startup. But at that point, only, you know, only 40,000 people. Not a whole lot of presence in the Bay Area at that point. Uh, they had a couple of acquisitions, including Hotmail, uh, that were in the Bay Area. But basically, everything was in Redmond. So I moved from San Diego to Redmond, which was a bit of a shock, let me tell you, weather-wise. <laughs> and got myself a little apartment uh, in Seattle. I commuted over the bridge every day to Redmond. And I worked on a team that was doing uh, web technologies. And that's why I joined it. I thought it would be interesting. Uh, which was kind of a new thing at that point. Um, most of Microsoft and, and a lot of the industry was doing 
C code. This was before Microsoft had any .NET or anything like that. It was all COM and that kind of thing. Um, but they had a couple of web projects, and so I was working on one of them. And uh, I actually ended up writing cross-browser JavaScript at Microsoft in the late 90s, which is like, that was the era in which they were more likely to um, talk about destroying things, you know. And so it was definitely a, an odd duck of a project. But yeah, it was JavaScript with a lot of if statements in it. If you're on Netscape, do this. If you're on, do that. I'll let Avdi go first, but I just want to say I spent a lot of time in the late 90s telling people not to write cross-browser JavaScript uh, because of Microsoft. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Avdi, what was your first job like? My start was slightly less conventional. At that time, I was I was 18, and I was taking some community college classes like part-time towards with an eye towards uh, computer science, but I really like I I had a grand total of three classes, and I was on my my last three C and C plus plus classes, and I needed a final project to tie up my grade. And at the time, my dad was working uh, at Raytheon, uh, one of the the big defense contractors, and they were transitioning a an air traffic control radar project to using more C plus plus code. And they were sort of having some growing pains with moving, transitioning into the C++ world uh, and the sort of pseudo object oriented frame of mind that that required. And at the time I was studying C++ and, and so that was like my whole world. And, and my dad had the brilliant idea that he could bring me in and I could like consult with his team for a, a couple of days and then I could use that experience towards my final project. And somehow he actually managed to convince his boss that this was a good idea. So, you know, I'm like this 18-year-old kid in a tie-dye t-shirt with a bunch of middle-aged engineers. Just And basically what I remember is just saying polymorphism a lot. <laughs> and, and they're all sitting around going, oh, yeah, yeah, polymorphism, good point. <laughs> and a couple of months later, so, so it made for an absolutely terrible class final project. Nobody knew what I was talking about, but I got my grade anyway. And, and a couple of months later, I got a call from uh, the engineering manager there that said, hey, do you want to come on as a contractor? And uh, basically never looked back. That was the beginning of my professional software career. So mine's, mine's a little bit I don't know, I guess both more and less conventional. I came out from a graduate degree, so I guess I, I, I'm a little bit older than both of you. I had actually worked like summer job kind of stuff. I actually was an intern at Apple the summer of 1995. So I was an intern at Apple the summer that Windows 95 launched, which was very strange. A very, like the, the least good time to be there in the entire history of Apple was probably the summer of 95. That was when I was there. But my first real job after I graduated was actually doing web consulting, which we didn't call it then. But I somehow found a small company in Boston that had been documentary filmmakers and then documentary CD-ROM makers and kind of stumbled into building websites for healthcare companies in like 1998 when this was a very easy thing to set up shop for and convince people that you could do. Um, there were all these companies looking to get on the web. And so they hired me because they thought my graduate degree meant I knew something about building software, which was um, their naivete. And it was... <laughs> It was like a 12-person company that was, for weird historical reasons, had like nine people in Miami and three people in Boston. In some ways, my career is very strange because I never really had a junior-level job because I came right in out of grad school into a small company where I was basically the most experienced software developer already. Oh, dear. Because <laughs> no, nobody there, they, they were all like people who were like 
film editors who had learned HTML uh, mm-hmm. and were learning Cold Fusion. So I had a, a weird situation where um, we were building web projects. We were building web projects for major like Fortune 500 healthcare companies. And I was the, the somewhat terrifyingly like the person who knew the most about building software at that point. Um, and then after I left there, was unable to get a senior level job at another company on my years of experience. Like I was unable to get a job doing what I had been doing because I nominally didn't have the experience to do it, which was also unsettling and weird. But yeah, my first job in, in practice was web consulting for healthcare companies build, doing a lot of stuff that's not all that dissimilar to what I'm doing now, which was kind of what sparked this for me was was looking back on that project. The, my first really large project, which was in about the year 2000, which was took f- you know five people like three very intense months, probably four normal months. Uh, and now- with the tools and the tooling and the framework, now it's like we, you could do a, a single person could do it in a month and a half or something like that, pretty easily, I think. And so it was interesting to me to think about like what in the day to day practice uh, has changed and where that improvement comes from and and where it doesn't. So I was kind of wondering what you thought has changed in you know what's easier, what's harder, what is not as good as you thought it would be now, what is easier than you thought it would be now. Anything like that? Well, one thing that I've been thinking about is that uh, a lot of times I, I work, my team has quite a few folks that are, are new grads or like fairly early in their career. And um, when I say things like, oh, yeah, Joppa was super cool back then, like they literally don't believe me. <laughs> but I remember like at that point, uh, I had done a little bit of Java in college. Like there was that one cool professor who had like offered a multimedia course, I think they called it or something. And it was basically like Java applets. Uh, And I took that like my last quarter there. And I was like, this is awesome. And everyone, uh, you know, all the people at Microsoft were like, oh, my God, you know, nobody's ever going to work. You can never never run a virtual machine in production. You could never run. It'll never be fast enough. Um, You will never be able to like run real code on a virtual machine with garbage collection. You're always going to have to do memory management yourself because that's how you make it really fast. And now it's just like kind of an accepted thing, right? Now it's just a piece of the, it's, it's in the water. It's a piece of the scaffolding that we build on. We don't even really think about it if you're building apps. It's like, of course, there's like multiple layers of virtual machines now between me and the actual memory. You know, not only is there the programming language, but there's probably a container, probably several containers. Who even knows? It doesn't matter. <laughs> you just don't even need to know about it anymore uh, because it's fast enough. And uh, that feels like one of the big shifts to me. You know, one of the things that, that you know the talking about uh, Java kind of reminds me is just th- that maybe one of the things that didn't go the direction that we expected is is like I I feel like I remember a lot of a lot of predictions that everything was going to go the way of one particular technology or one particular framework or something like that and and there were a few different you know along the way there were different ideas of what that was going to be but I think the one of those sort of long term takeaways is that things are always fragmented and it never stops. Like there's always somebody saying that in the future we're all going to, you know, everything's going to be Corba or everything's going to be Java or everything's going to be this or that. But it's, it never really seems to pan out that way. Although like looking at, you know, large, broader technology stacks, it does kind of happen that way. Like, you know, now everything is done on, is done with web technologies and viewed as a, you know, one really large technology stack that, that has kind of changed. 
one thing that's that kind of did pan out as predicted by some people was that, you know, when I got started, there were a bunch of people getting really excited about dynamic scripting languages, um, which were widely viewed, you know, by people of the establishment as being toys. And, you know, there were a few people saying, hey, we're going to actually build real things with this. And lo and behold, you know, these days, uh, a lot of the real things out there are, in fact, built with languages like Ruby or Python or JavaScript. Yeah, I remember the the having to... Or PHP, sorry, PHP too. <laughs> I built some PHP and, and started That's, on... Yep. Powers an, I, I, I have to remind myself to say that because that powers an enormous amount yeah, of the web. It, it really does. sometimes. Yeah, I remember having to convince my boss at that first company, uh, having to talk him into using open source tools in general. In particular, I wanted to use Python. And he was concerned that he didn't know who he would sue if something went wrong, which, wow, I mean, sounded a little crazy to me even at the time. But was not an uncommon reaction to open source at first because, I mean, not just Sue, but like, who do you call when something goes wrong? Right. And he wasn't even like the technology person who had the technologist's objection to open source. He was like a salesman and a business person with like a the business person's objection to open source, which originally was, there's something fishy about this. Why are people giving this away? And so he was just skeptical of it. I still encounter people, especially in the Salesforce ecosystem, which is definitely a little walled garden of its own, who who don't really understand open source either. And so I'm still having these conversations, uh, which is kind of fascinating. I think that you know one huge change, not just open source in the sense of the ecosystem having all of these tools available, which I think is a huge change, but also open source in the sense of having all of this code available to see and to learn from. I think that is huge. Yeah. Cause I mean, even before I, when I was growing up and learning to program, like source code for something large was a rumor, like you never saw it. And, and to be able to go onto GitHub and see like the rails source code or anything like that is just amazing. Like it's a huge change. Yeah. And that's also, there's a connection to the technologies that, that have changed too, because, you know, like I was saying, like with the, the advent of scripting languages, you know, it used to be like, even if you were using some open source components with a lot of the technologies back then, the idea of actually being able to, you know, in your stack traces, in your debugger, drop down into the framework code. The idea of being able to see the frameworks code and see how that was working was incredibly novel. It was just like not a thing that, you know, usually it was just a black box. Um, And so the fact that that code is both A, open and available and B, available in your development environment and not in some opaque compiled form um, has definitely made things a lot easier to understand. Yeah, it's definitely made it easier to understand and, and easier to debug and uh, you know easier to work with, honestly. I feel like at some point, the fact that there wasn't anyone you could call became an advantage almost because it's like, okay, that means that I can go look at it myself and figure it out right now. Like I don't have to wait for somebody to call me back. Yeah, I generally, I, that was one of my selling points in you know 1999 or whatever when I was trying to, to sell Python was that I actually was getting better support just through the message boards than we were getting from a layer for cold fusion. But I, I never quite managed to convince them before I wound up leaving. You know, something that, that I'll say about that though is that I've sort of come maybe not full circle, but maybe halfway around again or something on this because now, you know, as somebody who runs a business I actually do have the concern of who am I going to call if this code doesn't work for me? Because I've realized that, you know, my time is not free and my time is often very ill spent in trying to debug other people's code. It's, 
it's a very low leverage use of my time. And so um, I'm often, often when choosing technologies and choosing software, looking at uh, that same consideration, not who am I going to sue, but, but who, who am I going to pay to fix it if this goes wrong? And that's actually something that I run into as a, a difficulty with open source now is that there is a fair amount of code out there that I actually don't know the answer to that question. There's also code that I do know the answer to that question. Um, uh, bringing it back to PHP again, the, the WordPress community has done a really good job of putting code out there that's open source, but which has a professionally supported version that you know who you're going to call and they're actually you know there for you and can work out the kinks. Yeah, I think Sidekick has done a really, Mike Perham has done a great job with that model. Yes. And he has also been really helpful, I know, in, in um, working with other people to help them think about that model for themselves as well. I'd really love to see more of that model outside of the, outside of just the the WordPress world, which is where I've seen it the most. Like, you know, uh, Sarah, you brought up Mike Perham, and that's a great example. But the, you know, the the notable thing to me about that is like in the Ruby world, he's like, practically the only person I know using that model. And something that I rant about periodically on Twitter is that when you believe that everything ought to be free, like all code and and documentation and stuff like that ought to be free, that assumption comes with some implications. You know, I think it's 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 brought us to it's it's brought wonderful things to the world, but at the same time that assumption comes with some in- implications and one of the implications is you know, if you're not expecting not to pay for anything, then then the community that evolves is going to be skewed by a whatever moneyed interests are actually paying for all that quote unquote free labor, um, and whoever happens to have you know whatever parts of the community happen to have an excessive amount of time on their hands. I agree. I also think though that that you're sort of uh, talking about something I've been thinking about recently, which is the fact that the source code is not the intellectual property of a company anymore. And it feels like open source has pretty much surfaced that idea in a way that is kind of subtle, but it, it you know, it, I think it shows itself sometimes in these, in these things where it's like, Oh, well, of course the source code is going to be available, but then you could charge for, you know, other pieces of other pieces of uh, support, like documentation or being able to call somebody or email somebody or file a ticket or whatever. Uh, like the source code itself is not really the hard part of any project. It's it's like the the real valuable part is what's in people's heads about you know the knowledge that they have about the problem that they've been solving. I definitely feel like the attitude towards that is something that has clearly changed over the twenty years. That source code as the thing you lock up in Fort Knox and throw away the key was a pretty common attitude when when I first started, and much less so now. Just all across the board, you know, big companies, small companies, frameworks, um, that kind of thing. It's a huge difference in how we see the industry and where value lies. I think that the idea that code is a liability and not an asset is much more prevalent. Like the, the you know, obviously the like no code kind of things that you that you've been that you talked about last time you were on, you know, that kind of thing was was pretty non existent twenty years ago too. Yeah, it's definitely true that like back in the day there were I remember on like Ruby message boards the recurring question was how do I lock down my code? How do I, how do I obfuscate it so that nobody can steal it? And yeah. you know, you still see that occasionally, but it's definitely a lot less common now. Yeah. That was a question that came up in my first project at Microsoft too. It was like, how do we, how do we keep people from stealing your JavaScript? Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that it doesn't really matter if they steal your JavaScript. 
Yeah, I, I had not at my first job, but I had a, I had a Python project later on where I had that as a concern. Where in, in particular, they had a proprietary algorithm that they didn't want people reverse engineering from a Python application. One other thing that, that's changed. So in this time frame, Agile and XP as concepts both essentially started just a little bit after we both started. Um, like my first serious web projects were done, you know, in, in complete lack of knowledge or, or, or understanding that, that that kind of project management even existed. And, and now, at least within, you know, most of the, a large, large section of the web community, it's ubiquitous, at least to pay lip service to. How do you feel like just sort of the way projects run has changed over that time? Honestly, not as much as I would have expected. <laughs> uh, I feel like there are, like you say, there's a lot of people that are doing... The vocabulary has changed a lot. <laughs> The vocabulary has changed. That's a good point. I feel like what happens day to day has not changed as much as I would have expected. And maybe the, maybe the, uh, I have a somewhat cynical point of view here because I started at a large company and then I lasted there about a year and a half there. And then I fled to a series of smaller and smaller and smaller companies. And it's only in the last year that I've come back to any kind of company that had more than 100 people. And now here I am back in my 40,000 person monolithic, huge company, right? And so it's been really interesting to see the difference having been gone from big companies for most of the last 20 years and now back to see that like, oh yeah, well, this is pretty much the same. I mean, back in Microsoft in the 90s, we each got our own office and nobody does that anymore, (laughs) which personally I think is a good thing. But like really there's still a lot of like, you know, solo ownership of code and projects. There's still uh, not as much collaboration between teams um, due to sort of just organizational drag. And big companies seem to have done a reasonable job at adopting the language of Agile without actually having to adopt the spirit of it. They, they got the lyrics, but they forgot the tune. Yeah, and, and they're trying, but there's organizational limitations in place that, that need to be addressed. And and that's a long-term, a long-term project. And certainly it's better than it was in the late 90s when we all sort of toiled away in our individual offices. And then that meant that we really didn't talk to each other very much. So we each had this little piece of it that we owned. And then, you know, it came to the date when we were supposed to do, start our integration work. And, you know, we, we all showed up with our code. And, of course, none of it worked together because we hadn't really been talking about to each other about what these interfaces meant and, like, what actually was supposed to be passed back and forth. And so while technically they would all hook up to each other, like, nothing actually worked in the system. <laughs> it does seem like continuous integration as a practice is a it's, lot more prevalent that's now. That's true. That's a lot better. It is a lot better. That's a good point. And, you know, sometimes I think maybe it takes an outsider to point it out. But yeah, it's like before it was like, yeah, you just, you know, here's here's the date when we're going to start our integration work. And then that was when we had to talk to each other. And usually they would like sit us in a conference room for a couple of weeks and like make us work together. But I think now it's more like, oh, well, of course there's continuous integration. Of course, when I push my commit, it's going to go run all the tests. And you can find pathologies on that side as well. But I think that Definitely the supporting technology is more mature. Yeah. One of the first things, not at, at my first job, a little bit later on at a somewhat larger company, one of the first things they did to me was ask me to review like a, hundreds of pages of design documentation for a project, a company that had spent like five people, six months, and their output was like a bunch of UML design, oh, document, like software, software design? design documentation. Like, I don't, wow. I don't think that happens anymore, at least not casually, <laughs> like 
comparing like the small companies that I started out with the, the smaller companies that I've been at more recently, I think that one thing that's changed, it's hard to say because my, uh, my first company was so sort of innocent of software knowledge that their practices <laughs> were, they just, you know, would just sort of throw stuff at the wall and see what worked. And, and I think that in some sense it's harder to do that now. Uh, now that there's like 20 years of 20, if you're talking just about web programming, 20 or 25 years of, of, of practice to look at, um, which in 1998, there really wasn't. Well, where, where are the pieces of the industry today? Do you think that are still throwing stuff at the wall? Like there's, there's always going to be something like that, right? Is that, is it ER? Is it, there's like, always, well, I think in terms of how project structure works, I think that like small, I don't know. I don't want to overstate this, but I feel like when I started, we didn't even have a vocabulary to talk about what we were doing. Like we didn't have a vocabulary to really talk about stories or pieces of work. And and part of this was because, like I said, these were people who did not know software at all. And I was pretty much in that boat as well, except that I had a degree. And I think that, that, that one of the things that has changed is that that vocabulary, at least for how you structure projects is much more readily available. Like I remember I had a very, hard this first major project was not run well like we were, we put in a ton of of, of work on it and it, there were also i don't want to get into you know the the things that went wrong on the project but it, i i read the xp the original xp white book in the wake of that project and it was like it was you know the perfect time because i had just had all of these problems and here was this thing that's claimed to had had a vocabulary for talking about what my problems even were and had an idea for how to solve them. And I feel like the vocabulary kind of diffused through the industry, but the solutions didn't necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I do think that some of that is now in the water, right? Like it's the idea that you brought up about like, okay, infrastructure, automated tests. Like people didn't even write their own automated tests in the late 90s, usually. Like at least at Microsoft, developers did it, right? Like there were- Testers do that, right? So you just that, write the Is that what the government the contractors was like, Avdi? Oh, yeah. Testers. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, where I was, I think I probably did did one of the first projects that was ever test-driven and had, you know, 100% TDD test coverage. It was unheard of. Right. Um, the, the very idea that developers would be able to write tests was something, I mean, obviously the testers were threatened by it, but the developers were threatened by it too. Yeah, I worked with a lot of people who felt it was sort of beneath them. Yeah, it, well, no, what Sarah said, you know, that it, it's, it was kind of beneath them. And also that it was, like, it took a long time for the idea that you could write a test first to make any sense to people. And, I mean, there are still plenty of people that don't do it. But it's it's a lot more accepted now. Like, it's accepted that that's not a completely insane thing to do, you know, that you can do it either way. But, yeah, that was that was a big shift, the idea that that a spe, you know an, a, a runnable specification could actually drive development as as opposed to you know you just bash out a whole bunch of code and then you run some checks to make sure it works the way you think it works. One of the things that I think does stand behind all of these things is just how much faster and faster the hardware has gotten, which makes the containers more easier, which, which, you know, the containerization more viable, which makes the dynamic languages more viable, which makes testing first more viable in a way that I think if you had said 20 years ago, like, this is how much faster computers are going to be, you know, imagine how much faster the the web is going to be. You know, the web's not that much faster. (laughs) But it sure does a lot more. Right. So we've used that. I always think about there, there's this idea, and I don't know what, what it's called, but, but the, the metaphor here is that as cars got safer 
in America, Americans by and large took that safety and spent it on being able to drive faster. So the number of auto deaths didn't decline as much as you'd expect because people used that safety. You know, they're they're were able to drive at the same relative level of safety, but faster. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like people have a budget. Yeah. And I kind of think about like what we have spent processor speed on. You know, we've spent processor speed on containerization. We've spent processor speed on language design. I don't know. What else goes in that bucket? We've certainly spent it on JavaScript and user interface improvements on the web. Yeah, I think so. I think that's definitely true. I feel like to some extent we've spent it on, in a weird way, on more more people, a a much broader um, amount of people who are developers, certainly than from like 30 years ago. As the hardware becomes cheaper and it becomes more accessible to become a developer. That's an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, definitely the, the core of developers is very, very different now than it was from 20 years ago and, and in a very positive way, in my opinion. And I think, you know, like when I started, it was probably, I don't know, probably four or five years before I ever worked with another uh, woman who was a developer. There were women who were testers. There were women who were project managers, uh, but it was quite a while before I ever encountered another woman who was a developer. Hmm. And these days, that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, there are, you know, of course, there are always going to be teams where that's still the case, where they're all male. But, like, it's really not that unusual. Like, a lot of the small companies I worked at, I was the first woman there. And now it feels like that's less common because the the core of developers has just diversified as it has been able to bring in people who um, I think like Avdi mentioned earlier, where like, you know, instead of just being people that have a lot of free time and can do open source, now there are other avenues in the, and I think that the computers being cheaper and faster, like you're saying, all is also a, definitely a, a one of those causal factors as well, where it's like, well, if everyone can have a laptop that's fast enough to, run, you know, Ruby or Python or PHP or uh, even Java. I mean, you can run Eclipse not very well, but you can still run it on like a Chromebook. You know, like these things, you can you can really do a lot more. And, and you know, especially with open source tools, like if you don't have to pay $900 for an MSDN subscription in order to get a compiler, like that's amazing too. Yeah, that was what the other, the other thing I was going to say about open source was that not only... It, you know that the, there used to be all of these software associated costs related, and, and we still have software associated costs related with starting a business, but a lot of them don't kick in until you get a little bit bigger. Like you can start for almost nothing. You don't need to buy a compiler. You 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 can start on Heroku for relatively inexpensively. Like you can develop on a Chromebook credibly. Um, you know the barrier to entry there is much much lower than it was. It's an interesting thing to see how the venture capital industry has like adapted or somewhat failed to adapt, I think, um, in that like it, it used to take a lot of money to start a website. You know, you need to like rack servers somewhere. And so you actually had to like buy hardware. And so really like the, the, the lowest, um, you know, the, the, the least amount of money you could spend building a website was like on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And uh, like you're saying right now, it's just, you know, you can get going for, you know, the amount of money you might spend on lattes uh, over the course of a month. And that's a huge difference. And so in some ways, like the venture capital folks are still giving these people money as though it takes $300,000 to launch a website. 
you know, you need venture capital when you're in an industry where startup costs are so high. And we're not in that industry anymore. But somehow we still have a funding model that thinks we are. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't I don't know enough about the, the VC world to think about why that is. I think that's why you've got so many companies that aren't VC funded these days that are opting out of that whole cycle. Yeah. It's much easier to opt out. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's see, what stayed the same? <laughs> what stayed the same? Emacs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Vim's sort of the same, although I guess the M is new. Right. I mean, we still, if you're a web developer, you're still mostly effectively writing HTML. You're still mostly dealing with relational databases that you would have been. Like, it's it's funny how much sort of incremental change we've sort of made against a, a very, very similar paradigm. Yeah, that's true. I think the uh, this is not exactly in the vein of, of what stayed the same, but something I've noticed um, that's kind of come around uh, in a way is when I got started. So when I got started, I wasn't building web applications. I was working on things like embedded systems and networking middlewares and you know low low level stuff like that. And one of the systems that I worked on, like I said, was a air traffic control radar system, and it was composed of many different physical components in, in separate racks. Some of them could be separated by, by rooms or even miles. Then you had like the, the antenna tower itself and it had its own computers inside. Uh, and then you had other computers inside the, you know, where the, the uh, controllers could actually interact with them. Many different components uh, running different architectures, all communicating with each other over various sort of homegrown service buses and networking protocols. And the interesting thing about that was that you couldn't really do isolated tests of these things. There was no way to run all of, all the different bits of software virtualized. You know, it was very difficult. You had to do a, a whole lot of of connecting hardware together. Um, you know, you had to have entire labs to even begin to try to get everything together and run it, put it it's, it through its paces, and you know, make sure it was all working together correctly and, and handling failures correctly and stuff like that. And, um, and so one of the things that you saw with that kind of software was that there was a whole lot of integrated testing. So there was a whole lot of, of, you know, production time testing. These systems would, you know, individual components of the system would devote, you know, they would typically would operate in kind of a cyclical fashion where they just go through a loop every, every second or so, um, with various bits of that second allocated to different, um, responsibilities. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're processing constant returns from a radar, that, that makes a lot of sense. And a piece of each second that the software was, was running would be devoted to testing itself. You know, it would be devoted to running itself through some preset scenarios with some pretend uh, radar tracks and making sure that everything was working right. And, you know, just doing that again and again and again every single second. And then the whole system at a larger level of granularity would do the same kind of thing where, you know, one of the components would, would send test signals through the whole system and make sure everything was was responding correctly. And what's interesting now is, uh, you know, for a long time it felt like, oh, you know, this web stuff is so much simpler and easier than what I used to work on because, um, you know, it's basically everything is just a simple request, you know, request response cycle through, you know, it's pa- practically a function uh, from the browser, you know, down through our software and then returning some data back. But you know, nowadays, more and more, it's starting to look exactly like the kind of systems I used to work on, uh, just at a different level of time granularity. 
but the same kind of thing where you're you're you have multiple services, maybe multiple services you yourself control, which are running on multiple machines, and you know functioning independently, failing independently. Uh, you have numerous external services, external APIs, which are a, a, an important part of your business, and you have to be able to talk to them, and you have to be able to handle when they when they slow down and when they fail and stuff like that. And so it's sort of come full circle where it really feels very similar again. And, and I think one area we might be trailing behind a little bit is that we haven't really shifted yet to a production time testing frame of mind. I do see that happening to a certain extent, I, especially with, like you're saying, when you've got constellations of services, some of which you control and some of which you don't, uh, it's pretty much impossible to spin up a realistic test environment that will actually make sure that it, the system as a whole is working as you expect. And so we do see, I am starting to see now a lot of companies, mostly larger companies who have this problem, do a lot of testing in production. And um, Facebook does a lot of this uh, and other companies do as well. Uh, Facebook has talked about it publicly, I think. And they basically will run, uh, they will make a very small change to code and push it out to a small number of people, um, small for Facebook, right? Maybe only a couple million, um, and then see which metrics change. And they use these metrics and these monitoring. This is where you see a lot of this sort of monitoring and observability stuff that's coming up. The reason that is is becoming a thing now is because it's more important to see what the system is doing in production because you can't see it any other way. And so I think, though, that there's, like you're saying, Avdi, there's some lessons we can draw from these older style of things where, like, maybe we do want constant test loops. Maybe we do want something that, you know, runs a diagnostic of the system once every 10 minutes. You know, it, we're not all writing air traffic control systems, but in this complicated world of, like, systems that may be up or down or not working or who knows, or you need to be able to understand what these systems are doing as a whole, yeah. it seems like some of those models would work really well. I feel like we also need to to look harder at this point at you know less about preventing the failures and more about structuring our systems so so that we they can tell the story of the failure better because I mean you know as as I've gone on I've realized that I've poured an enormous amount of time over the years into trying to reproduce errors in isolation and you know so many tickets that I've addressed over the years have been like okay this thing is happening in production so spend a day trying to figure out how to reproduce it in development yeah that was definitely certainly possible with simpler web systems. Yeah, and I think we've hit kind of a point of of diminishing. Maybe a while back, hit a point of diminishing returns on that. I agree. I think that it was always sort of an illusion, but the illusion is becoming a bit more transparent now. <laughs> to me, it's a symptom of uh, a much larger tendency for us as programmers and maybe just as humans, where we tend to always grasp at illusions of control and of predictability. And you know, if somebody comes along or some architecture comes along and says, yes, you can actually have that. You can actually have the predictability and, and the reproducibility and the reliability and isolation and all that. Uh, it's, it's a very tempting kind of siren song. Yeah. I think it's ultimately probably not possible though. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that seems to be like the selling point of the Docker world is that you can do that, but I don't know. I, mean, I think the best you can do is kind of divide the complexity, right? And try and put it somewhere else, but it's not going to go away. Yeah, I feel like you can manage it to a certain point, but the 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 last that last the last mile of it may be irreducible. Yeah, well, and 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 something else that that I think is a 
general truism is that the more you try to pursue that kind of rigidity, the harder things fall when they do fall, the harder they fail and the harder they are to diagnose when they fail. I think there's sort of a a continuum, you know, it's like a slider between more predictable, but also falls apart messier and less predictable, but, but maybe can tell its story a little bit better. I think there's a Douglas Adams quote on point where something like the difference between things that are supposed to break and things that aren't supposed to break Mm. or things that can never break is that it's much harder to fix the things that can never break when they break. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and to me, to me, this is also the, the kind of continuum where we find, um, you know, between the dynamic languages and the, the, uh, the static languages. Right. Cause I feel like at least in the web, like, or at least in, you know, in in the, the, the part of the industry that I have visibility into static typed languages are growing again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pendulum swinging back again. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure what's driving that particular pendulum unless it's just that the system, the complexity of the systems is getting to the point where the advantage of a, of a typed system is, is beginning to outweigh the cost, especially because the newer, the newer languages with type systems seem to impose a much lower cost on them than C or even Java. Well, yeah, I mean, typed languages used to be complete garbage. And so it was obvious why you wouldn't want to use them. Now typed languages actually aren't garbage anymore. And so it's, so it's much less obvious when you might not want to use one. Types for me have always been a communication mechanism that you don't need unless you are uh, unless you are in a large organization. That usage of type systems by smaller organizations never made a ton of sense to me because I mean, in those situations, what you want is more flexibility, and in order to get that, like you can you can give up the the safety of types because you don't really need it at that level. But there's a certain point at which automatic communication. Uh, between teams is a really useful thing to have. And, you know, we do that in Ruby too. We make types. Like when we um, create APIs around our gems, like that's essentially typing that interface. And we're saying, okay, here is a, something that is solid and is not, uh, you know, here's, and it's documented and here's some tests. Like testing is almost a form of like typing to a certain extent, right? So there's a lot of ways in which we erect these boundaries that make the communication between pieces of the system more or less automatic. And, you know, it's, it's more of a spectrum now. It feels like sometimes a typed language isn't a huge leap from certain ways of writing uh, in untyped languages. Right. Well, TypeScript, like the first time I played with TypeScript, I got a, even just by myself, I got a noticeable advantage in the first thing I wrote in TypeScript, even accounting for the fact that I had to like install TypeScript and figure out how to get it set up. Refactoring in TypeScript is really nice. Yeah. The tooling that you can do in that in a type language is something that I don't think the dynamic language has ever really caught up to, and I'm interested to see where that where that winds up going. Okay, one thing you think is going to change in the next five or ten years? I feel like one thing that is going to change is that uh, it feels like over the last twenty years we've uh, I don't know if you uh, remember a book called Code Complete. Uh, I, I actually do. went back through my um, my Amazon purchase history, and that was the first book I bought from Amazon, and I bought it from them in 1996. Cool. That was my first Amazon purchase. <laughs> I'm staring at my copy right now. I bought Code Complete before I started grad school because I was in a panic that I would not know enough programming compared to the people who were in grad school, who had mostly had engineering school undergrads, and I did not. Mm-hmm. So I, that was where I think that was, into some sense, where I really learned to program. And I, you know, the thing about that, that was the they had a, a copy of that waiting on my desk when I showed up at Microsoft on the first day. And and the thing about that book, you know, I read it uh, again. Uh, pieces of it anyway, uh, a little while ago. And it's, it's a bit dated at this point, but 
the interesting thing about that book is that it is very focused on things you, the individual, can do that sort of relate to the other people around you. But the other people around you are never really mentioned explicitly as even existing. And it's very focused on sort of like, what do you need to do with your code in order to you know, really ship software? And uh, it feels like over the last 20 years, one of the things that has changed is that we've realized that software really is a team sport, that the interconnection between code and the people who write it is much stronger than it may appear to be just when you're you know, sitting there looking at it. And that it is really important to understand how to interact with the people on your team, both through your code and in person and through other mediums like you know, text and, and email and what have you. And this is a book I keep thinking is going to exist and, and doesn't seem to exist yet, which is sort of like you know, the code complete for the next generation, which is like, how do you do this on a team? You've learned how to do this on your own. How do you do this uh, with other people? What are, what are the skills that you're missing if you come out of school and you, or, or boot camp or what have you? And so you know how to code. That's great. Uh, what else do you need to know? What other skills are you missing in order to be able to write software in this modern world? And so one of the things I think is going to change over the next five or ten years is that we're going to see much more explicit acknowledgement of that, both uh, in the industry. And then I think it's going to start filtering down into the educational system as well. And we're going to see computer science programs shift to be uh, more oriented around communication and code being one medium of that communication. I believe you about the industry. I am skeptical about computer science programs changing in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they do use Java now instead of C++. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, I suppose. I don't know how it's going to change things, but I think one of, to me, one of the most delightful things that I'm seeing lately in, in how the industry is changing is just, um, you know, love them or hate them. One of the, the impacts of the boot camps has been a much wider variety of people getting into programming. In my work, I've encountered so many more people in the last few years who came to programming after some kind of other life. Uh, so they were already, or had already been doing something else for a while. And then, you know, went into a bootcamp program and switched to being a developer. And I just see so much good perspective coming from people like that. People with much wider, a much wider variety of backgrounds and a much better understanding of, you know, life out in the real world apart from just the software part of it. That's something that's very hopeful to me. I think that's going to change the industry in good ways. Yeah, to add on to that a little bit, like the first uh, first Dev Bootcamp cohort graduated in 2012. And so right now, those folks are, you know, just getting into, you know, solid mid-career, right? In another five years, those folks are going to be the seniors. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when we have a, a much different group of people in senior technical positions. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I agree with both of you, and I can't add anything. And we are sadly running out of time. So, um, Sarah, where can people reach you on the internet if they want to talk about this some more? Probably best to reach me on Twitter. At Sarah May. That is correct. And Avdi? Uh, you can find me at Avdi on Twitter, A-V-D-I, and at Avdi.codes. Great. Thank you both for being on the show. This has been uh, great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rampin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us, and we will be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. <laughs>